Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Katherine Combs from UCI Health and Dr. Toby Ayer from Oxford. They will be discussing their choices of key studies presented at the recent SOHO 2023 annual meeting, focusing on the use of BTK inhibitors in chronic lymphocytic leukemia and mantle cell lymphoma. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Targeted Therapeutics in CLL and MCL, Applying Emerging BTK Inhibitor Therapy Data to Practice. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set and expert discussion, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Hi there, I'm Dr. Katherine Coombs presenting on behalf of Clinical Care Options. Uh, Some of the research that was presented at the SOHO meeting in 2023, it's a pleasure to be here today with my colleague, Dr. Ayer. Yeah, hello everybody. Um, Great to have you with us. I'm Toby Ayer. I'm a consultant hematologist in in Oxford in the UK. And I'm going to be starting off by asking Callie some questions around some of the CLL abstracts that we saw um, at the Congress. So the first one that we've picked is a matched adjusted indirect comparison of three randomized phase three trials, which all included Brutinib as one of the control arms. So as I'm sure many people are aware, we've seen randomized, important randomized trials recently, the Alpine trial of Ibrutinib versus Zanabrutinib and the Elevate RR study of Ibrutinib versus Acalabrutinib with some slightly different results, interesting results. And this is a, an attempt potentially, Callie, to look at the control arms and how the control arms performed in this study. I wonder if you had any thoughts about this comparison. Uh, Yeah, so I actually thought this was an interesting uh, study, um, an interesting question to ask, which is essentially how has abrutinib performed over time in all of the different randomized studies that uh, used in the relapse setting? And so just as you mentioned, the idea was to do a these match-adjusted indirect comparison of of three different randomized phase three trials where abrutinib was used in one of the two arms. So these three studies were Resonate, Alpine, and Elevate RR, as you mentioned. And as we know, um, the the dogma in medicine is you should not do cross-trial comparisons, yet we are all doing them. And I'd say it's even more common nowadays. And so I think these analyses are thought-provoking, but of course, the gold standard is always a prospective randomized trial where the groups are truly balanced. Uh, When these matched adjusted indirect comparisons are done, um, the groups are inherently different. And so they make a statistical attempt to uh, match the baseline characteristics. And so that was done as part of this analysis to assess how is abrutinib performing in these different studies. Um, And so this is a a way to equalize the playing field, but of course it is an imperfect exercise. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, they matched patients based on a number of important clinical features, such as age, presence of bulky disease, how many prior treatments they had, and their cytogenetic markers to come up with a resonate adjusted population to then compare to either Alpine, uh, the phase three study using Xanabrutinib, or Elevate RR, the phase three study uh, using Acalabrutinib. And so what they found is that when they looked at these resonate adjusted populations, the uh, overall response rate um, ended up being uh, numerically higher uh, for uh, both of the resonate adjusted populations compared to Alpine and Elevate RR, uh, respectively. 
And this did reach statistical significance, uh, though to a greater effect um, when comparing against Alpine. Next, they looked at the progression-free survival rate. And I think this is particularly interesting. Um, after Alpine came out, there was a lot of comments about, gosh, did Abrutinib underperform in this study? And so in this match-adjusted analysis, looking at Abrutinib, it did show that when comparing the resonate-adjusted population, their median progression-free survival uh, was higher uh, than patients in Alpine. So this was 40.7 months compared to Alpine's 34 0.2 months. However, when comparing the resonated adjusted population to elevate RR, uh, there was no statistical difference in these progression-free survivals. So suggesting perhaps Alpine did have um, an underperformance of abrutinib um, in the control population. Now, what am I going to take from this study as far as my clinical practice? Well, I, you know, this isn't going to outweigh the findings of Alpine, which in my view was a positive study. Zanabrutinib did outperform abrutinib. However, I think what it does uh, reflect is how um, control arms can perform over time and how I think about abrutinib control arms in the future. So I think that with subsequent years, in our uh, history of CLL, I think it's not unexpected to see a change in the progression-free survival of abrutinib because the eras are very different. So Resonate being the oldest study really reflects a population of CLL patients that had few, if any, good options. And so I think their motivation to stay on therapy is absolutely the highest. Now, as time goes on, our options for alternative therapies for our patients continue to change. And so I think when a patient has a lot of options, perhaps their motivation to stay on a therapy in the setting of a toxicity uh, becomes a little bit lower because they have more available for them in that setting. And so I think it's an interesting study, not practice changing, but certainly somewhat thought provoking and um, will be something I think about with further studies using abrutinib as a control arm with respect to its performance. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Kelly, for a very clear um, overview there. I very much uh, concur with the sort of change over time and um, clinician and patient preference and the way the way studies may be managed now. Of course, we very rarely get to see the sort of post-protocol care data in huge granularity. So certainly that'll be something I'll be keeping my eye out for when we hopefully see longer follow-up in Alpine. You know, how many of these patients did ultimately stop and switch to a second-generation BTK inhibitor like, for example, acalabrutinib outside of clinical studies, and was there sort of global disparities there? It would be very interesting to see. Hopefully, we will see that in time. We'll have to watch this space. Thank you. And then the second abstract that we've picked out is a meta-analysis of cardiovascular adverse events with some of the second-generation BTK inhibitors. Now, of course, we, we are spoiled for choice now with BTK inhibitors, and so we scrutinize small differences in BTK inhibitor rates of toxicities, and um, certainly cardiovascular adverse events such as atrial fibrillation, are, as you know, Kelly, scrutinized very carefully across these studies. And this is a, this is a systematic review and a meta-analysis of second-generation BTK inhibitors. I wonder if you could talk me through some of the, the key findings in this analysis. Yeah, so um, the investigators in this study uh, took a look at all the randomized phase two, three studies of acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib in CLL and came up with five trials that met their eligibility for their meta-analysis to really try to understand how are these newer generation BTK inhibitors performing with respect to some of the key toxicities that we worry about. 
which include uh, cardiovascular adverse events, and then of course uh, bleeding risk uh, being you know factors that we consider um, when we're using these drugs. So um, what they did is they uh, lumped all of these eligible studies together to assess um, how they're performing with respect to toxicity profiles in comparison to the control arms, which were different in these studies, of course. Uh, what they found is that there was, in fact, a significant reduction in cardiovascular mortality um, uh, with an odds ratio of 0.16, uh, favoring uh, the safety profile of these new drugs uh, to their comparators uh, with a lower rate of cardiovascular AEs leading to death uh, when using a calibrutinib and vanibrutinib in this pooled analysis. However, we do note that these drugs do lead to uh, significant bleeding events. And so on that meta-analysis uh, aspect, they did find a significantly higher risk of bleeding in the patients that were enrolled to the treatment-naive uh, studies with an odds ratio of a little over six. This was any bleeding. And so they also similarly found a higher risk of uh, major bleeding once again, in this treatment-naive uh, CLL population with an odds ratio of 2.8. So I do think it is um, an interesting study to kind of pull together the data that we have from our uh, second generation, if you will, uh, BTK inhibitors, calibrutinib and vanibrutinib, uh, once again, uh, showing um, that they are a better tolerated class and certainly pose an advantage over uh, the predecessor comparator arms uh, from uh, these pooled studies. But it is important to keep in mind this bleeding risk, which in my view, in my own practice, is pretty similar among all of our available covalent BTK inhibitors and uh, certainly is a class effect, in my opinion, that one needs to watch out for when using these drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly an interesting observational study, um, as you say, probably unlikely to change sort of practice in what we do. I do wonder, maybe I need to take a deeper look at this data, but I do wonder whether there may be an effect of just cumulative events occurring in patients receiving a BTK in the frontline setting compared to relapsed refractory disease, where we know patients will be on a BTK inhibitor for a shorter period of time. So I wonder if an adjustment needs to be made for the time on, on therapy, because uh, to my mind, that's an important part of an analysis such as this. But um, yeah, certainly intriguing and thought-provoking data. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good point. And um, with any study of BTK inhibitors, you always have to really read into the data to understand um, are the reporting periods equal um, if they're being compared to something time limited, um, such as, you know, bendamustine rituximab or, you know, whatever, depending on what study was um, looked at in this meta-analysis. And so that type of granularity wasn't clear to me from the abstract, but if this ends up getting published, you know, maybe that'll be a bit more clear. So that's a great point. So now let's pivot into talking about um, a couple of the mantle cell lymphoma abstracts that we have picked out. And so the first study that we'd like to discuss is the Bruin trial. And so at our summer uh, congresses, including SOHO, we have seen uh, some updated results from uh, this pertubrutinib in uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So I was hoping that you could uh, touch upon this, Toby. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kelly. So for listeners who haven't heard much about pertubrutinib, this is a pretty new non-covalent reversible BTK inhibitor, highly selective BTK inhibitor with a, a very favorable pharmacokinetic profile, which is being developed across a range of B-cell malignancies in the Bruin trial. And we've actually seen pivotal data now from the Bruin trial um, assessing a total of 166 patients with mantle cell lymphoma and the primary analysis set of 90 patients has been presented and actually published in the JCO earlier this year. 
And this takes a high-risk group of patients with mantle cell lymphoma, nearly all exposed to chemotherapy, CD20 antibody, and all exposed to a prior covalent BTK inhibitor, and looks to assess the response rate and a number of other important endpoints such as survival and toxicity. This formed a subgroup of the Bruin trial, which, as I say, um, assessed a number of B-cell malignancies and was a large phase 1-2 study. No maximum tolerated dose was found in the phase 1-2 study, and 200 milligrams once a day was used as a recommended phase 2 dose, and most patients have received that dose. When you take a deep dive into the baseline characteristics, you'll see that um, these patients, as mentioned, are heavily pretreated, the majority stopping the prior covalent BTK inhibitor for progressive disease um, across the patients that have had a prior covalent BTK inhibitor. There was a small BTK-naive uh, sub-cohort with an eye to the future, looking at, to see how active this agent is in, in covalent BTK-naive relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. And the response rate in that small subgroup was high at 85.7%. Now, the longer-term follow-up, which is what we've um, seen from the recent abstract, um, showed that the overall response rate was 56.7%. In this group of patients with a CR rate just under 20%, and a good number of patients developing uh, tumor responses, including patients with higher risk disease, which was one of the aims of this abstract. The duration of response overall was 17 and a half months, and the PFS 7.4 months. So, in interesting that if patients did respond, which is obviously just over half of patients, you had really quite durable responses given this clinical context. And the overall survival, the median has been reached at just under two years, which when you compare to how patients performed historically following covalent BTK inhibitor failure, this seems to be a certainly a step in the right direction. One of the uh, interesting sub-analysis that was presented here was um, duration of response by high-risk features, so high key C67, TP53. Now, one of the problems with this study was there are really quite small numbers being assessed here and clearly more data needs to be collated from these patients um, in the study, and hopefully they will be in time. But it, in, in these small subgroups, you saw no real difference in terms of um, duration of response according to those higher-risk groups. So at least suggestive that pertubrucinib may be as active in patients with, for example, a TP53 mutation. But I think we certainly need more data before that's uh, certainly shored up. And then just finally, we saw longer-term safety data. We've just been talking about safety data with covalent BTK inhibitors. The safety data with pertubrucinib looks excellent to date, relatively short follow-up overall. But what we do know is that the rates of discontinuation due to adverse events is very low at between 2 and 3%, 3% in the mantle cell cohort. And the rates of grade 3 toxicities are really very minimal. Well, thank you for that overview. And so I'm, of course, interested to see what comes of the phase three study in mantle cell lymphoma, where pertubrutinib will be compared to investigator choice of covalent BTKI, abrutinib, palabrutinib, or xanabrutinib. What are your thoughts on this study? And uh, what would you expect um, with respect to, you know, I think that the responses look very promising in the BTK naive uh, mantle cell patients. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a phase three um, superiority study of 500 patients in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. So I suppose innately a fairly brave study and also comparing against the de facto standard of care. So in Europe, people use abrucinib. It's approved by the EMA and the MHRA. And in America, obviously, there's been much publicized change recently. But second generation BTK inhibitors are very much to the fore there. So zanabrucinib and um, acalabrucinib. So they're very much a standard of care option in relapsed mantle cell lymphoma. And as mentioned, this is a superiority design. I suppose the idea here is that rates of discontinuation due to toxicity will be very low with pertubrutinib. 
the reversible nature of the BTK inhibitor and the PK profile with the IC90 being um, exceeded across the whole 24-hour period should lend itself well to be particularly active in more proliferative diseases. And we've certainly seen data in mantle cell lymphoma and Richter's. It looks very active as a monotherapy. So yeah, I mean, watch this space. The study's recruiting, recruiting well, and we'll have um, not only head-to-head data from an efficacy standpoint, but I think also some very intriguing head-to-head data from a toxicity uh, standpoint, which may have uh, sort of broader ramifications, perhaps beyond just mantle cell lymphoma. So an important study for a number of reasons, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, the last study that we were going to speak about is this uh, VIPER trial um, combining venetoclax, frutinib, prednisone, obinutuzumab, and lenalidomide in uh, patients uh, with relapse refractory and treatment-naive MCL. So could you uh, touch upon the findings that we've seen uh, from this study, please? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for um, pronouncing the study and naming all the drugs. You sort of saved me <laughs> Saved me that. This is a, an intriguing study, certainly. This is a study sort of designed in the NCI, and uh, they have tested this um, combination Vipor in a range of malignancies, uh, particularly DLBCL, but now we're seeing some data in mantle cell lymphoma. So this is a phase one, two study, a three plus three design looking dose escalation um, cohorts of venetoclax with fixed duration dose, sorry, fixed doses of um, ibrutinib, the steroids, the abinutuzumab and the lenalidomide. Um, and then we see a little bit more data with expansion cohorts in relapsed refractory and indeed treatment naive mantle cell lymphoma. Now, actually, when you look into the data, into the literature, certainly venetoclax, ibrutinib, lenalidomide, all clearly active drugs in mantle cell lymphoma. There have been some challenges combining IMIDs and BTK inhibitors in the past in terms of toxicity, so one must be wary about this. And of course, you know, this has a, a potentially substantial financial toxicity associated with it, which um, of course is a major consideration when you look at a regime such as this. There's 26 patients treated so far, 12 in the relapsed refractory setting, 14 in the frontline setting, and there are some high-risk patients seen in this study. And uh, toxicity was manageable. The main toxicities were hematological, as one might expect, but grade three or greater uh, cytopenias were relatively uh, manageable. In terms of non-hematological toxicities, the rates of atrial fibrillation were uh, were 8%, the rates of uh, rash 12%, this is grade three or greater. Uh, with some infections and small numbers of other toxicities seen. And dose reductions were required in about a quarter of patients, most of those related to lenalidomide and were were related to cytopenias, as one might expect, with 86% completing six cycles. So this is a manageable regime to deliver in trial-fit patients and does have the advantage of being a fixed-duration therapy. When the efficacy is analysed, all patients responded. The CR rate um, in those who were efficacy available was 100%, which is um, impressive. And this included patients with blastoid disease, TP53 mutation, etc. And outcomes seem to seem to be durable to date, although longer follow-up is certainly needed. MRD was also assessed as a sub-study, and this again was impressive with high rates of MRD negativity demonstrated. So. Overall, the conclusions were that the fixed-duration VIPOR regime resulted in high levels of undetectable MRD, uh, complete remissions, and this was seen in high-risk patients as well, both in the frontline and relapsed refractory setting. And it seems to be safe. No DLTs were observed. There weren't any episodes of tumor lysis syndrome. Some patients had to dose attenuate, but it seemed to be a manageable regime. So certainly intriguing whether this regime has any sort of legs moving forward in terms of 
genuine development pathway beyond an academic study, I think, is debated. But clearly, if you manage uh, a protocol very carefully, you can combine a, a number of active drugs together in a regime such as this. Yeah, that is, uh, I think, the most novel agents I've seen paired together. Um, so I do worry about cost, but I'd say the tolerability is better than I would have thought, especially with the, the cytopenia as being uh, a problem. So very interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ayer, and uh, to um, uh, Clinical Care Options and our uh, audience for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much, Dr. Combs and Dr. Ayer, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Targeted Therapeutics in CLL and MCL, Applying Emerging BTK Inhibitor Therapy Data to Practice, and to access additional resources associated with this program from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.